I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanera, and this is the podcast on the shoulders of giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow. Because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries. And only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. I remember it like it was yesterday, late October 2008. I had received my U.S. citizenship with one week to spare before election registration closed. On election day, I was totally ecstatic. I woke up super early because I had to fly to New York City on a business trip that morning. So I was one of the first people at my polling station, and with pride and a swagger in my step, I proudly cast my vote for Barack Obama. The rest of the day is still a blur. Even though I was in meetings all day, my mind and heart was not altogether there. History was in the making. This election was huge. That night, as the results started trickling in, I couldn't help myself. I left my hotel in Midtown Manhattan and walked about 10 blocks to Times Square to be part of a crowd that was gathering there. By the time Barack Obama walked onto the stage at Grand Park in Chicago around midnight Eastern Time to make his acceptance speech, there were probably about 10,000, maybe 50,000, or it could have been 100,000 people in Times Square. I don't know. All I know is I was drowning in a sea of happy people. Alison Lachman was one of those that I might have spotted in the crowd at Grand Park on the Times Square Jumbotron in Chicago, had I known her back then. She was there amongst those in the presence of the man who would become the 44th president of the United States. Allison had started out as a volunteer for then-candidate Barack Obama, but by the time the elections rolled around, she was deeply entrenched as a serious contributor to his presidential campaign. Allison would then go on to serve as the first chief financial officer of the Obama White House, and eventually become the chief of staff of the First Lady Michelle Obama. And yes, Allison lives right here in Vermont, where she currently serves as the executive director of the Burlington Housing Authority, an organization that provides affordable housing support to low- and moderate-income residents in the Burlington area. Allison, welcome to the On the Shoulders of Giants podcast. Thank you. That's quite a it's quite a build up to a conversation I'm looking forward to having. <laughs> awesome. Um, so, Allison, uh, what did you want to be as a kid? Uh, I grew up in a small town of about 1,200 people, and my goals were very, you know, aware of what was in my community. So I really wanted to be a bank teller when I was young because I knew I liked counting numbers. Oh wow, that was my very first job was a bank teller. <laughs> <laughs> And so uh, what was your childhood like? And uh, do you have any formative experiences in your childhood that uh, would make you what you are today? So I was raised by two incredible parents. My mom um, ended up getting her uh, bachelor's degree and then her master's in education. And she taught special ed and behavior disorder, disorder kids. And my dad owned a gas station. 
and they were just really solid middle-class people who worked hard to give their two daughters the best of everything and they always instilled in both of us my sister and I that we could do anything and I think that just was what I thought was normal and so I think that was a big part of it and originally thinking I wanted to be a teller just seemed great and I actually was a teller when I was in college um, but but they all, always told me, and what I always knew was that I could do whatever I set my mind on doing. Of course. So you did sort of uh, realize your childhood dream there. <laughs> <laughs> I did. They also were were very responsible citizens and always voted. Now, we never talked about who we voted for because that was our own business, but I always knew it was my responsibility to, to be involved in, in voting for candidates. Maybe not actually getting out there canvassing, but actually always voting. Okay, I see. And uh, were you at all actively involved in politics in your never? No, never. I never had any interest in it. I never knew anybody who had done it. I just knew my responsibility was to vote. Um, but then Barack Obama was my senator, and when I watched his speech in the, at the 2004 Democratic Convention, it just seemed it just seemed like uh, he was just a different person. His values, his intelligence, his way of speaking, inspiring inspiringly and across the aisle was just something that kind of captured both my husband and my interest. Great. So what happened in the interim uh, between, you know, kind of going to college, finishing college and uh, starting to work? So I, I got my undergrad in finance and then I did, I was the, I was a bank teller while I was in grad school, got my master's in accounting. I went on to be an auditor at Arthur Anderson back in the day when it was one of those firms that you were really proud to be involved <laughs> with. And I, uh, I you know, I, I rose through the ranks there. I loved not just auditing, but actually helping my clients solve problems. And I, so I was, I was good at what I did. I then um, left to become the CFO for one of my clients who was in, in trouble with the SEC. Um, and so I kind of helped them write the ship there. And again, that's what I like to do, but it, it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't like the mission actually sang to me as much as it was that I was doing what I was good at. And so it really wasn't until I, I, I decided to volunteer at the 08 campaign that I understood the difference of actually aligning your talents with an organization that you that you care about the mission even more than your own contributions. Okay, so let's talk about that. Um, how did you get involved in the uh, 2008 uh, Obama presidential campaign? It's a little bit of a circuitous route. I will give my daughter a lot of credit. She was going to school, a high school in New Hampshire, where politics is like religion. And she was writing for the school newspaper. Uh, she was doing the column on um, students for Obama. So for her 16th birthday, I took her to a fundraiser back when you could see President Obama for a couple hundred bucks. And it was transformative for her and for me to just actually meet him in person. And that was great, but I didn't think anything more about it. And then right before the New Hampshire primary, she called me and said that they all got the day off at school so they could go out and canvas. And I just thought, wow, if my 16-year-old can do this, I need to get off the couch and go do something. So <laughs> I called up and you know answered one of the many emails because once you make a donation, you get all those emails. And I just said, is there something you need me to do? And so I went down to the field office in Chicago and made phone calls to South Carolina, which was not my comfort zone. I don't like calling people and asking them how to vote. I do think it is important that you vote, but I'm not necessarily one to share that. But as I was leaving, I saw someone that I had met before at the fundraiser, and I said, look, I'm an accountant. If you need help, let me know. I'm happy to help to come in and volunteer. And she said, well, shoot me an email. And so I literally sent a two-paragraph email talking about, you know, I, you know I'm you a CFO. I can do whatever, budgeting, all these things for you. Let me know if you need help. 
they lost the New Hampshire primary. I got called the next day and said, can you come in and volunteer? And I said, sure, I'll, yeah, I'll come in. How about tomorrow? And they're like, no, how about you come in today? And I went in and it was, you know, it was, it was the right time at the right place. I had skills they needed and I had no predisposition about what, 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 what I needed. I just wanted to help. And so I said, I'd give them 15 hours a week. And then literally after 15 straight hours, they said, well, why don't you just come in every day? And then a couple of weeks later, they're like, why don't you join the staff, which was at that time one of the biggest honors. It wasn't about money. It was about getting that email address. And so I joined the staff at that point after a couple of weeks of being a volunteer. And then shortly thereafter, they realized that I had some of the, the grown-up accounting skills that they needed to, to join with the enthusiasm of everybody else on board. And so I took over the, the finances for the campaign. So I'm sure you're pretty glad to no longer having to make those cold calls. <laughs> well, that wasn't my comfort zone, but the, the the great thing I learned when I did find, when I was able to use my talent in the same organization, that it matched. If you can use your talents where, you, where you're passionate about the mission, it, it just feels like no work at all. And I will tell you, that was the really, that was the mode of the campaign. Everyone did what they were asked to do. Some people were overqualified. Some people were underqualified. It didn't matter. We worked together toward a common goal. And it was the first time I'd experienced that because of the, the mission focus. There was almost no infighting. It was just a really passionate, committed campaign. So you started putting in all these hours into it. Did you start to see where this was headed? And how heavily involved were you in the actual campaign part of it? Or were you kind of just behind the scenes? So that's that's an interesting um, common perception but it is all one campaign. So we are all, we were all on the same floor. This is, so now I was at, the, I was at headquarters, right? So we were all on the same floor. It started out, there were probably, I don't know, maybe 300 of us on the floor. By the end of the election, we grew to 800 and no one would go to another floor because we just wanted to be together. So we just <laughs> kept getting crammed and crammed and crammed more closely together. Um, so our shop facilitated the advanced people on the ground. It, it facilitated the president's travel. It facilitated everything. So we were involved in every aspect of it from the, from the support. Everybody was involved. So you described what you felt on election day. I will tell you when early polling started, we all watched that. We watched 90-year-old grandmothers voting for the first time for a black man, and we were we would cry every day with the stories that we were seeing. We knew we were doing our role in helping make this happen, um, but we weren't just a back office versus a front office. It was a team. Yeah, because that, that's sort of the impression that I would have had when I think of accountants in the traditional sense. You know, you you're not really... Uh, in, on the front lines of what's going on, but it sounds like it was such a well-run campaign. And that's one of the things that I find very interesting is that people talk about how uh, organizational leadership was what propelled Barack Obama to the presidency. Uh, what do you have to say about that? So the first time I had a conversation with the, the candidate, um, I mean, I'd met him a couple times, but at one point, he he just said, you know, you're doing such a great job. And I just laughed because I knew I was, you know, behind the scenes managing our cash position, making sure we knew how much money we had to spend. And I just said, he, you know, right, right, right. And he says, no, no, no. Do you know how I know you're doing a great job? Because I never hear any issues about accounting. And so, yes, it's minor, but we never had embarrassing things come out of our shop. We made sure that the, the team knew exactly how much money they had to spend on ads and events and rallies, and we kept everything going. That was our role. It wasn't like I had to be, I mean, I was there in Grand Park. I was, you know, they gave us 
wonderful location, but I didn't need to be there. That wasn't my job on this campaign. My job was to make sure the finances were there where they needed them to be. And that was so satisfying. Hmm. And so I know I remember that they used Twitter and Facebook and social media extensively for the first time. Uh, was that the platform that you'd been familiar with? And what was your sort of reaction as millions of dollars were being pumped into this platform that really had only just started taking root? We did interesting things with, with gathering data and like Im- embedding ads in video games and things like that. I, I will tell you a funny story about our social media. That was back in the day of MySpace. Um, and my, my mm. 16-year-old actually was an intern on the campaign that summer. It was her very first job. And she was responsible for the social media response for the MySpace page. They entrusted a 16-year-old to, to, to respond on behalf of the campaign. Wow. That's something that people ought to realize that happened in 2008. It wasn't just the 800 people in the field or the, you know, the, the number of people we had out in the field offices or in headquarters. We also empowered 1.5 million volunteers to go out there and speak on behalf of the campaign, which was a real gamble, but it was a gamble that paid off because people who did that got the information they needed from the headquarters, but they also were committed they were committed to the president in his election. So we just let that energy go. And, and as a result, it was really transformative. Wow, that's really cool. And could you see what was happening um, as it was happening or only in retrospect, you could join the dots? No, we, we saw it every day. Every, like I say, every day, you know, w- when the president went to Germany and he had the big, the big speech and, you know, every, we, our TVs were on at all points because we, we honestly needed to know what was aware because we were representatives of the campaign. We needed to make sure that the resources were there. We were, you know, if we ever got out of headquarters, which wasn't very often, we were representatives. So we always knew what was happening and the energy kept building and the staffing kept building and the structure kept changing. You know, the primary season was, was a real challenge because it was, was so extended but our team was just so brilliant. The people who managed the delegate counts, we always knew where we were headed. We were not surprised by anything. We had amazing polling and they kept the entire headquarters aware of everything that was happening. We, the president would come in and talk with us when um, Vice President Biden was appointed he, as, the, as the candidate's partner. He came in and talked to us. They kept us all informed as a team. That campaign really stirred people in a way that very few have, and it really spoke to the ideals of young people and aspirations for the future. Um, yeah. And their power and their role in, in, in driving that future. Yep. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. And so what was it like leading to the into the election, into the election day itself, and then that election day for you? Yeah, so that so it, it, you know, there's only so much you can do to kind of stay level. Uh, the 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 adrenaline, the drama was was just really building, and they did everything they could to have us just stay focused on election day. I was one of a few people that actually was sent to D.C. to stand up the transition. Both parties had to have their transition teams ready to go the day after the election. So shortly before, like the last, right before, actually, I think I flew back to Chicago on Halloween. But so right before that, I flew to D.C. and stood up the the finances for the transition office um, with the, with the advice from my boss to just stay focused on the election, just get there, stand it up and come back home. Don't even talk about the future. And I was like, so surprised. Like, why would I think about the future? I just, I, you know, I have no aspirational goals of going to the white house. I just want to get him elected. So I was like very naive and did it, met my future boss there and it was great, but it came back and we focused on the election. And then the actual day was, 
you know, it, because of early voting for so long, we'd been going through so much of this. The actual day was just like the pinnacle. And we stayed at the headquarters as long as we could until we kind of had a sense and then headed down to Grand Park um, and just, you know, just watch history being made. And then we, so we were up until two in the morning and then I literally had to fly to DC. They wanted me to fly the day after the election. I just said, honestly, I don't have any clean clothes. So I, uh, we went back, <laughs> we got home like at two in the morning after the election. I was back in the office by, you know, seven, really? trying to shut things down, picking up clothes. And then I flew to DC Thursday morning on the 6 a.m. flight and for the next 77 days. And I literally had 24 hours off before inauguration day. Wow, so you didn't even get to like bask in any glory. <laughs> it's all glory though, because we were so being part of a transition is amazing, and it is really where you make some of the best friends of your life. You're standing up a new organization around a leader that you just worked so hard to get uh, elected. You know, my daughter came to visit me over Christmas, and she just said, "You know, how long are you going to keep doing this? You spent the whole last year working. Your husband never saw you. You know, <laughs> isn't it time to come home?" And then she looked out my window and saw the Capitol and said. Oh, you have to stay. And she was right. Did you have any thoughts about uh, either becoming more involved or withdrawing your involvement? You know what? I just trusted it would play out the way it was supposed to. I listened to myself and I listened to the opportunities and it, it played out exactly the way it was meant to. I just really did kind of let it let it ride. And, you know, I was there for the right reason. I was there to, you know, in support of the president and his, you know, originally in support of the candidate, then in support of the president during the transition. And then when I was asked to serve in the White House, yes, of course, I will, you know, when you're called to serve, when you've been there for that public role, the public support role, you, you show up and it, and it felt right every step of the way. Great. So what's involved in a transition team and what, what did you do? So I ran the finances for the transition team. Again, that's my skill set, right? So what you do is you bring in a bunch of, of content area experts, a lot of people who have been previously involved in policy and operations, and they visit all of the agencies. This is how our transition worked. Um, they visited all of the agencies. They talked with the Bush administration staff, leaders at those agencies, did kind of write-ups of how they saw the roles of, you know, commerce and energy and all that, and, and the kind of who should be appointed secretary. So they did a lot of mission planning for the different organizations. We also stood up the um, the whole staff of the White House itself. The physical White House is the career that those, that's the physical house where the family lives, but the White House um, policy shop is basically 500 people who report directly to the chief of staff. And so those are all political appointees. You figure out that operating structure and who you need there. So it's finding the content experts. So we facilitated that, made sure that they had the money and the and the um, support for that. The parallel organization is the inaugural committee, and they have their own team and their own fundraising. We still had to do fundraising a little bit as part of the transition because the president needs to keep his message going. You get a small budget from the federal government, and then we did um, money for other things that would help facilitate the president's message getting out. So we had to do a little of that. I see. Then once that transition happened, uh, obviously you were then asked to stay. Can you speak to how that all happened? Yeah, so my boss on the transition um, asked if I would become the, the CFO for the Executive Office of the President which was a relatively new, it was, it was stood up at the end of the Clinton years, 
um, they, there's CFOs at all of the major agencies under the CFO Act. They extended it to the executive office of the president. Not that we have that big a budget. It's only a billion-dollar budget, which by federal government standards is kind of a rounding difference, but it's the president's budget. So they wanted to make sure it had the same level of responsibility and authority. So they created the CFO for the executive office of the president. So uh, my boss there asked if I would do that. And basically that meant overseeing 11 different um, components of the executive office, like National Security Council and OMB and um, Office of Science and Technology Policy, the White House, the executive residence, the, the vice president. So all 11 of those shops that all together are a billion dollar budget. Wow. So he asked if I would stay and do that. And, you know, again, I was there for the mission of supporting President Obama. So it was an honor to do that. What was it like walking into the White House for the first time? So I didn't work in the physical White House. Um, my office was, was a block away. It was basically, you have 18 acres for the White House. I will say the first time I walked in the White House and gave a tour to family members, I, you know, it's, it's just, I still have those pictures. And I probably gave a couple hundred tours and tours of the West Wing, tours of the White House. I just felt like it was such an honor to be able to share this with so many people. And that's one of my highlights. Now, later in my experiences there, I actually ran the physical White House and had an office um, in between the main floor and the family's floor. Um, and, and walking there every day to and from work is just, you just kind of pinch yourself. Um, but the whole 18 acres is not just the White House. So I, I had lots of different roles in lots of different locations. Wow. I, I, I know, I've known two people that have worked in the White House, yourself and somebody else, and I am regretting not having known you earlier and not having <laughs> had the opportunity to actually go inside and, and take a look. Uh, but it it is great. I actually, I, as I mentioned, I, my last year there, I also ran the physical White House when the chief usher left before we hired um, his replacement. And that was, it was fantastic because I got to see oversee a couple state dinners. I was also there when we had the earthquake and saw how stable that building really was. And, you know, I worked with the butlers and the ushers and the electricians and the plumbers, and that was a real honor. But also working with my financial team, you know, they, those are career people who just really made a huge difference. And I ended up then hi helping hire um, Angela Reed, who was our chief usher. Through She just recently uh, left the uh, the White House. And and she's been a lifelong friend of mine. She is a Jamaican immigrant who was running the Ritz-Carlton Pentagon City. And she was one of my, my proudest accomplishments of helping bring her on board and transitioning my interim role of running the White House over to her. I was um, actually happened to be in uh, Washington, D.C. when that earthquake happened. I was on vacation with my daughter and uh, we had just arrived at a friend's house. And they went there. They had given us a code to get into the house. And we just literally walked in when the earthquake then happened and stuff was falling off of their walls and stuff <laughs> and we had no idea we just walked into these guys house and were yeah. completely freaking what did out you do? <laughs> yeah i know yeah, it was pretty amazing yeah i, mean, I couldn't figure out and of course no phones work but amazingly text worked but yeah we only had a couple things fall over and really no serious structural damage at all which is pretty amazing yeah great um so what does a chief usher do so the chief usher is basically like the senior leader of the White House. So the chief usher has the, 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 the senior leadership team in the, the executive residence, which is the physical White House, consists of the chief usher and then the ushers. And they're basically the, the senior management. So we have an usher who oversees the facilities property. And we have a, a butler butler contingency that reports to another one of the chief ushers. So there's the butler, the, the uh, maitre d', and then the wait staff. 
there's housekeeping. Um, you know, it's just basically how do you, it's the White House itself, the physical White House is the family's home, it's a museum, it's office space, and it's an event space. And so all of those different functions are supported by 100 people and they report to the chief usher. And so you were the CFO first and then the chief usher. Um, no, so I was in, in, I was the interim director. Of, I mean, I didn't take on the role of chief usher. We didn't have a chief usher during I 11 see. months when I was running it. I didn't take the title. I was also still the CFO. So I brought in a deputy who ran the day to day. In fact, that same year I testified before Congress on our budget. Um, but I was there acting as the chief usher. Wow. So one of the questions I have is how do you sort of keep yourself grounded when you are in a situation like this where you're meeting and rubbing shoulders with some of the most influential people in the world? You're in a situation in a position where, you know, I think most people would give up so much for, and yet you still keep your grounding and still maintain motivation and keep the momentum and the hunger going. Well, I think it always, it still goes back. I don't want to be like using this phrase too much, but it really means everything to me. It was mission driven. I was there as a public servant supporting President Obama's um, role in, in, in helping him fulfill his constitutional duties. That is actually the language I used when I testified. So my role was to support him. There are a lot of people who cared about doing that. And I met them on the campaign trail. I met them in the White House. And I just knew they were all there for the same reasons. And so you you stop looking at them as, oh, they're different. They're all there for the same purpose as I am. You know, I grew up in a small farm town. I'm working in the White House. I work for the president. Once you meet the president, it's kind of hard to meet somebody else who can blow you away more differently. But I also watched him go from a candidate to the president. And so you just really focus on why you're there. Yeah, that uh, really speaks to me a, a lot. Um, so from the position of uh, chief financial officer, you then became the um, chief of staff for Michelle Obama, um, the, the first lady. How did that all happen? So I, I became her chief of staff for, her, uh, the, for the um, Obama re-election. So not at the not her official chief of staff in the White House. I was the chief of staff for the campaign. So after I served as the interim director of the executive residence while we were looking for a chief usher, uh, once we brought someone on board, I, did, I decided that I probably had been I'd been in D.C. at that point for three years, and and I probably didn't need to go back to being solely the CFO because I I had actually kind of encouraged my deputy that I would eventually let her take that on. And so I accepted a job to go back to Chicago to be the chief of staff for the Chicago Public Schools. And when I announced that I was leaving the White House, um, the First Lady and her team said, wait a minute, we didn't realize you were ready to do that. Would you take this role? And again, because I had committed to serving the Obama administration, you, you don't turn the First Lady down. So even though I really don't think of myself as a political person, you know, I, I, was, I signed up to do another campaign. And But the good news was it was based back in Chicago so I could live at home again. Um, you know, but, you know, the, all the stress and the tension and the responsibility that comes with that was a, was a big lift. But, you know, there's nobody better to have worked for than the First Lady, except maybe your husband, but I would put them <laughs> on par. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, I've got a huge crush on Michelle Obama. And so I, <laughs> I am really, really jealous of the fact that you got to work with her. Uh, can you tell me what uh, they are like as individuals, both uh, the president and the First Lady? Or former president. So, so 
so yeah, I mean, and I don't think I'm going to say, I know I'm not going to say anything that isn't already out there because the fact is I worked for them. And so the most important thing is they always knew they could, they would trust me that I don't tell inside stories and things like that, but I think okay. it's pretty well known and I experienced it so perfectly that they are, they carry themselves with integrity and they are so smart and so strategic and it's just, they're incredible people to work for. Um, the first lady really always wanted to know what we were doing, why we were doing it, what was the impact we should have, and and why this mattered in the arc of the campaign. Because first and foremost, she was a mom, and she needed to know that if she's being pulled away from home, that it was for the right purpose. And that was the commitment I made to her, and that was the commitment I delivered throughout the campaign. She was she was out there. She made a huge difference, and yet we never pulled her away from the girls more than we needed to. And so your role as chief of staff, what exactly did that entail? So it meant overseeing her role in the campaign, both messaging and events and fundraising and, you know, keeping her apprised of how, how the campaign was going. It was basically overseeing. She was one of the three principals. So you had the president, well, four, um, actually, Dr. Biden was also a, a principal. So you had the president, the vice president, uh, Ms., Mrs. Obama and, and Dr. Biden were the principals for the campaign. And so they each had teams. Obviously, the president had the largest amount of teams, but they all had a role in the campaign. We made sure that their roles uh, intersected, coordinated, and were driving the impact that we hope to have. So I'm assuming the view uh, must have been a little different uh, from that uh, that you had <laughs> when you were acting as sort of the accounting side of the campaign in 2008. Totally different. Yeah. So, it, you know, in, in 2012, I was part of senior staff, which meant I you know, was at the morning meetings. We knew exactly what was happening in the country, what people were saying about us, what we were doing. Um, so the stress level was significantly higher. The hours were actually not as hard uh, for me because it was really geared around, you know, I flew around the country with the first lady and did other planning. So it wasn't like in, in the operation side of it, it was, you know, really almost 15 hours a day, seven days a week. This one was a little bit more strategic around events, but the stress level was significantly higher. Yeah, that's interesting. And and what's it like behind the scenes, uh, you know, that people might not, know or realize about uh, working in the White House? So I walked in to a team of 55 uh, financial people when I took on the role of CFO. I didn't know before I went into government truly how dedicated and nonpartisan the career staff who keep our government going from one administration to the next, how incredible those people are, how hard it is to suddenly have completely new leadership and have to adjust to a whole new set of priorities. And they, you know, my team, the team at the, at the executive residence, the hundred people that were there, they show up to serve the president. They aren't there because of who they voted for. They're there to serve the country. Um, that blew me away. I didn't, didn't realize that. I think that was probably my biggest awareness. So let's talk about current stuff um, real quick before we wrap up. So you now work for the Burlington Housing Authority, which is, uh, for my listeners, the oldest and largest municipally chartered housing authority in the state of Vermont. Can you talk to me about how that transition happened from being in the White House to working for the Burlington Housing Authority? And uh, what would you say to somebody who is um, thinking about a job that's in the not-for-profit and public sector Sure. So this this opportunity came to me at exactly the right time in my life. I 
I had personally had a really hard time after the election and the and President Obama got on the phone with alumni and said, okay, you know, get over this and start focusing locally, see where you can make a difference, local campaign, local issue, nonprofit that's helping vulnerable populations that might might have bigger challenges. At the same time, this opportunity came up to be the interim co-director here at Burlington Housing. And I've been in Vermont now for uh, like two and a half years, and I'm on some great boards, which I love, and I do a lot of things with my husband's college. And so I wasn't sure if I wanted to take a job, but this was perfect. It was interim. It got me focused on a local issue, you know, housing, housing insecurity, housing, providing housing security is just fundamental to everyone's well-being. So I came here, um, love the mission, love the people, love what we do. Um, and so while they were searching for the permanent director, um, I, it was, I was asked if I would consider staying on, and I just thought, this is where I'm meant to be. And I will honestly tell you, people have said this to me, I've had other jobs since the White House. And people say, how can you go from the White House to this? I mean, it goes back mm -hmm. to what I said in the beginning. If you care about the mission, it's where you're meant to be. And I have never had a job I love more than the job I have here. Now, nonprofit, government, private sector, I think that's all personal. It's like, if you care about the mission, that's where you're meant to be. There, there's, those are just different corporate structures. It's, do you care? Are you having the impact you want to have in this world? If you can say yes, then that's the place for you. My early career, I did what I was good at, which I don't regret. That's how I got the skills to be able to do what I'm doing now. But being able to work where you care about the mission, that's the pinnacle. I mean, that, that, that means every day when you show up, it's not about punching a clock or doing X, Y, or Z tasks. It's what can you do to make a difference today? And so um, is your vision for and of America a positive one? Um, I remain hopeful. I, I think we have we have to come together as a country. We have to show up with integrity, and we have to we have to help those who who need help because we've all been helped along the way. And I I think that's who we are, and I think that's how we will stay. Absolutely. So, uh, in closing, this is a question that I ask all of my guests: If you could travel back in time and have a conversation with a younger version of yourself, what words of wisdom would you say to yourself? Trust your instincts, show up confidently, and show up with integrity. Great. And uh, just one more thing. Uh, would you like to share uh, how people might be able to find out about Burlington Housing Authority and what you guys do? Absolutely. Our website is burlingtonhousing.org. Our main headquarters is at 65 Main Street. We'd love to sit down and talk with people, have them check out the website. There's a lot that we can do to help people in the community that people may not be aware of. So reach out to us. We not just have apartments, we also have the you know 2,600 families get assistance through us. And we have great retention services that help people stay in their homes. Oh, fantastic. Love that. So Allison, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your time and your story with us. I could sense the passion that you had for what you did and what you do. And uh, even though uh, people talk a lot about the dysfunction in Washington. Uh, there's still a lot of really good people that are working tirelessly to make our country what it is today. And uh, the work that you're doing today with uh, the Burlington Housing Authority uh, shows a commitment to a cause greater than your own personal ambition. Uh, you use the word uh, mission-driven, and that really spoke to me. And I can only imagine what other opportunities you've turned down um, 
coming for, out of the White House and choosing to work uh, for a small government agency here in Vermont. So on behalf of myself and the residents of Burlington and Vermont, I say thank you and thank you personally for taking the time to be on this podcast. Thank you so much. I'm the lucky one to be here. And with that, we'll wrap up the show. Next time on the podcast, On the Shoulders of Giants, we talk about falling breastfeeding rates, cultural taboos on breastfeeding, and the sexualization of women, and how that led to Christine Dodson and Sasha Mayer, the founders of Mamava, to develop a company whose mission is to normalize pumping and breastfeeding. I, I think there's something about the breastfeeding mom thinks, well, once I'm done with it, it's out of sight, out of mind. And yeah. for us, it was this dilemma that we saw our siblings, our friends still facing every day. Wait, like, wait a minute, you're at work and you're pumping a storage closet. Oh, you went on this trip and you're in a restroom in the airport. So the, the need to act was sort of undeniable. And I think sometimes we call ourselves reluctant entrepreneurs <laughs> in a, yeah, to the degree, well, well, I guess if no one else is going to do it, I, well, we have to step <laughs> forward. I think as practical uh, business-minded people, it was with the passing of the Affordable Care Act. In that legislation, there's a mandate that employers with more than 50 employees um, have to provide break time and a place that is not a restroom for moms to pump. So the idea was so, with us. Sorry, hang on a second. So the law had to be passed for moms to have a, sp- a place to pump? Essentially, yeah, there were state and municipal laws that did protect moms if they wanted to have the break time and a place that wasn't a a restroom, but really not until the piece of legislation tied to the Affordable Care Act mandated that if you are an employer with more than 50 employees, you actually have to provide a space that isn't a restroom and the break time for moms to use breast pumps.